Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 215, Bletchley, comes into its own. Last time, the mighty Bismarck had just gone under at 10.40 a.m. on May 27, 1941. The British had tried to pick up survivors, but U-boat activity nearby made that too dangerous. In the end, the vast majority of the just over 2,000 people on the battleship perished. But the war went on. The survivors, oil-covered and half-drowned, would be taken away and processed to begin a new life in captivity. At least for them, the war was over. A week after the sinking, the BBC put out the names of the few survivors on the BBC's German-language channel. Of course, the families of the sailors wanted to know their fate, but Berlin had said any German listening to the BBC for any reason would be put to death. Still, by May 1945, some 15 million Germans were listening almost every day. So again, the Bismarck was gone. But how different had Bletchley Park been before this moment, before they had taken information from the weather trawler München and the physical evidence from U-110. Now, they could decode signals in just a few hours. Of course, as it was only 1941, the war had a ways to go, as did the Royal Navy. But it didn't help that the German Navy would change their codes and add another rotor ring. But it didn't hurt either. The men and women at Bletchley had learned much by this time. The Germans would make a change, but Bletchley would rebuild the bigram tables and feed them into Turing's system, and the British would be right back to where they had been. Even better, it didn't take long for the cryptographers to figure out that if they took much-used phrases and fed them into their bomb prototype, these messages could become normal German. And at Bletchley, the number of people who could read, but not necessarily speak German, was growing at an impressive rate. And now that they had achieved this level of breaking the enigma, Turing, Knox, Hensley, and all the other colorful members had their efforts focus on the enemy's navy and in regards to the British home waters for the month of June. Might as well see if a difference could be made right out of the gate, or otherwise, what was the point? And the results spoke for themselves. From June 1st to the 23rd, there were no convoy attacks. None. Why? Because those men and women at Bletchley got really good at using U-boat signals or orders to them to track their location. The merchant ships were simply instructed to go around them. Not that those crews knew any of these details. They just knew that their orders or courses were a bit unusual. But then again, they did not come under attack by the enemy. That was a fair trade. But as nothing lasts forever, the sinking would return, yet at a lower rate. In July and August, the tonnage of shipping lost fell to below 100,000 tons for the first time in a year. And if one cast their mind back to the series of the U-boats off America's east coast and the tonnage that is going to be lost from January to July of 1942, then this number is truly staggering. When November 1941 came, the tons lost was down to 62,000, and that's factoring in that the number of U-boats in the area had been increased by half. And yet, a caveat must be pointed out. 
The Bismarck was sunk with help from the cryptographers at Bletchley, but the breaking point came when they read Luftwaffe code, not naval code. And because they could not do that fast enough then, they couldn't do anything about the Prince Eugene as she made her way back to Brest. Which is not to say that there still weren't fish out there to scoop up. Bismarck was gone, but the numerous supply ships sent out to assist her, i.e. to keep her going, they were still in the Atlantic. Again, taking out supply ships is not sexy, but it was effective, and London needed all the help it could get that summer of 1941. Thus, the carrier Eagle, with supporting escorts, was designated Force F and sent out to sink those supply ships. An imperfect signal seemed to suggest that a tanker would be waiting for the Prince Eugene at 900 miles west of the Canary Islands. So, Force F headed that way on June 2nd. Alas, there would be no confrontation. But other hunters had better luck. The next day, a different supply ship, Belchin, was forced to sink herself when come upon by the cruisers Aurora and Kenya. The U-Boat 93 had been in the middle of refueling when the British ships arrived. Nazi Germany got to keep the sub, but they lost the tanker. U-93 had sunk eight ships up to this point, but she would take down no more as she was not much longer for this world. Seven months later, U-93 would be depth-charged by HMS Hesperus, while in between Portugal and the Azores on January 15th, 1942. But going back to the present, June 1941, there came a slew of enemy ships sunk or captured, mostly supply vessels. But still, that's enough to keep those warships at home. However, the Admiralty did worry about the Germans catching on to their enigma being broken. But of all the ships sunk in this time, the enemy tanker Gedania was captured by the ocean boarding vessel HMS Marsdale, led by Lieutenant Commander D.F.H. Armstrong, without the aid of Bletchley. She would be renamed the Empire Garden and used by the Allies, and she would be joined by another tanker, yet two others were sunk by their own crew, thus keeping them out of British hands. One of the tankers lost was the S.O. Hamburg, done in by the cruiser London. Another self-inflicted wound was the self-sunk supply ship Gozenheim. She had been spotted by planes from Victorious, and the battleship Nelson was en route to her. And the list goes on. The day after Gedania was captured, June 5th, HMS London and Brilliant came upon the tanker Ederland. She also sunk herself to avoid capture. On June 6th, planes from Force F came upon the German supply ship Elbe. Though she was disguised as a Norwegian ship, she ignored the hails coming from the planes overhead. Not a good idea for a long life. Six days later, the town-class cruiser HMS Sheffield found and sunk the supply ship Friedrich Brehm. With this done, only one of Bismarck's supply ships was left, somewhere on the high seas. She was the Lothringen, and the battleship Prince Eugene could not help her as she had already pulled into port in France. Even worse for the Germans, Bletchley Park now got into the act. A German message had gone out that the Lothringen should make for a rendezvous point 
to fuel for subs on or around June 17th. Bletchley decoded the message in four hours. How the impossible had fallen. And then another signal, this was on June 14th, was intercepted and decrypted. This message went to the four subs telling them of the Lothringen, but to expect surprises. As in, the German Navy was starting to get nervous, specifically Admiral Donitz, this being the last supply ship of the group. But again, making it look like chance, something the British would get very good at, a plane from the carrier Eagle just happened to spot the tanker. The pilot ordered her to stop, but was ignored. So, the plane hit the ship with two bombs. Soon, the Lothringen was ablaze, and adding to her woes, the light cruiser HMS Dundon was on her way to finish her off. But in war, as in life, something can look promising one moment, only to turn out to have quite a surprise, and not a good one. When Captain Richard Lovett of the Dundon arrived on the scene at 5 p.m., he was shocked to see the Lothringen still afloat, as in her crew had not scuttled her. But why not? The other crews had, when they had the chance and the German vessel had had the time. Perhaps there was a U-boat around, or one was coming, and the supply ship was offering itself up as bait. Nothing for it, Lovett had a depth charge tossed to each side of the supply ship, just in case an unfriendly was down below. Then he sent a boarding party over. Fortunately, the ship's captain agreed to turn the vessel over, provided his wounded were looked after. This was agreed to. Only later would Lovett and his officers find out that there had been a mighty argument before the British ship had arrived, whether to sink her or not or at least sabotage her. It came down to the naval officers on one side and the chief engineer on the other, who said, why should I sabotage her only to have to fix her later if we get out of this? It's happened before. The fight led to a standstill. That is, except for the destruction of all things related to Enigma, or rather, almost everything related to Enigma. The boarding party had found the code books rendered useless, the actual equipment the same, thanks to a few powerful swings with a sledgehammer. However, whether on purpose or not, a cipher log was found behind a gramophone, and it had all the recent signals, wait for it, in plain language. The captain knew this could be compared to the same messages in code by someone else. It was taken to the light cruiser. As for the Lothringen, she went to Bermuda. Her name would soon be Empire Salvage, now working for the Allies. Again, this gain had been made possible due to the fine folks at Bletchley. During all this, Bletchley had also picked up the distress call from the Lothringen, but for whatever reason, the German Group West Naval Command never replied. Also, the subs were not warned away. What the hell was going on? Best guess was that the call for help or warning was never received. Then those same people at Bletchley came up with an idea, an idea worthy of Churchill, Rommel, even Alexander the Great. Since the subs and the naval command did not know what had happened to the supply ship, perhaps she could still meet up with them so they could be sunk 
or captured by the British. Four U-boats suddenly out of the game? That was worthy of consideration. Yet the uniformed men of OIC thought it over and then shot it down, though rather grudgingly. First, of the four subs, it would only take one thing to go wrong before a ship or ships were lost. But most importantly, Station X, Bletchley, and what they could do had to be kept secret. Almost everything else, except winning the war, was secondary. So Lothringren was pointed towards Bermuda. As for the Dunden and Captain Lovett, she and he would go on to do good work, capturing three Vichy French merchant ships. But then U-124 ended her career on November 24th of that same year, 1941, at 3.26 p.m. Patrolling in the Central Atlantic Ocean, east of St. Paul's Rock, Brazil, U-124 snuck up and put two torpedoes in her. Of the crew of 486 men, only four officers and 63 men survived. Captain Lovett was not among them. It's worth zooming out a bit and noting the irony at this moment. The more that Station X could read German signals, the more they could act on them and turn this war around. And yet, the more they acted on the decrypted signals, the more the Germans were likely to get suspicious and change how they did things. What was the right balance? This, too, would be worked out in time. But this argument quickly became moot when the German Navy changed the code names for the locations in the Atlantic. Still, Dilwyn Knox and his team had the new code words worked out in a month. How things have changed. As for the other side of the chessboard, Wilhelm Tranau and his team were able to read Royal Navy signals until June of 1943. This ongoing decrypting by the Germans was made possible by a special operations raid put on by the British with Rhodesian and New Zealand forces. The raid was to land near Tobruk, Libya, and disrupt airfields, supplies, vehicles, and harbor facilities. Instead, it was an unmitigated disaster carried out in mid-September 1942. Too soon is a phrase that comes to mind. In the end, several hundred Allied troops were captured or killed, and the Royal Navy lost one cruiser, two destroyers, six motor torpedo boats, and dozens of smaller support craft. But most importantly, the codebook from the destroyer Seek, which had been sunk close to shore and thus accessible, was found and brought to Tranau. But in June of 1943, the Anglo-American Naval Code was altered to be telex-based. As telex lines carry their own unique encryption, they could not be broken. Well, not in 1943. Strangely enough, it was the Germans who first developed and used the telex in 1926, so we're familiar with it. But Tranau was not going to be breaking this system anytime soon. So, what can be learned from Operation Primrose? Basically, though military branches hate each other, or more accurately, are taught to hate each other, the civilians at Bletchley were oddballs, but they worked together. 
allowing some, like Turing, to see the entire picture. Whereas in Nazi Germany, very few could see everything, and they certainly were not encouraged to ask questions or think outside the box. Just because something is different doesn't make it automatically bad or inferior. It's new and should be embraced as such. Progress is constant. The only permanence is change. Change.